Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadcasting from Geppetto Studios, located in Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania. This is Movies That Marvel, where we talk about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and whatever else we feel like. Is there anybody waiting? Getting sick of your surroundings. All you want is some attention. You can tell the truth. And you can tell the lie. Say anything you want to say. Are we all just lost in time? Hey, everybody. This is Brad Mendenhall, proprietor of CosmicGeppetto.com. Batman v Superman is out, and it's time for a to and from review. You know, where I record my driving to and from the movie. In between, Sean returns to talk about the new album Arranging Time by Pete Yorn. But first, in episode 11 of this podcast, you heard Jarf talk about Superman 3, a bad movie with a great scene. Sometimes that happens. A film that doesn't connect until one sequence draws you in. I remember watching Sixth Sense with my sister and brother-in-law. We all thought it was slow and kind of boring, right up till the famous I See Dead People speech. We were then convinced, as was much of America, that M. Night Shyamalan was a genius. Oops. Another movie that was just okay until a great scene was Jim Carrey's The Mask. The Mask was a little-known comic. In 1994, a film version was released starring Jim Carrey, who was fresh off the surprise success of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. At that point, no one was sure Carrey was anything more than a flash in the pan. Ace Ventura was fitfully funny, but hardly a good movie. Carrey was one of the best things on the TV show Living Color, but that hardly makes a movie star. I saw The Mask in theaters and wasn't impressed for the first half. The plot dealt with mild-mannered Stanley Ipkiss, played by Carrey, coming upon a mask possessed by the trickster god Loki. Remember him? Thor's brother? Kind of a jerk? When Ipkiss would don the mask, he became imbued with wacky powers, pretty much turning into a Tex Avery cartoon character. There were problems with the movie. Carrie didn't seem all that mild-mannered with or without the mask. Truthfully, he was less interesting than the actress playing the object of his desire, a performer at a local music club played by then-unknown Cameron Diaz. I also really liked the film's antagonist, played by Peter Green, a solid movie-slash-TV villain who has played heavies in Pulp Fiction, Zed's Dead Baby, Under Siege 2, The Usual Suspects, and the TV show Justified, which is a personal favorite. So the movie is moving along, and I'm not too impressed. Until the scene.
call me Cuban Pete. I'm the king of the rumba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Yes, sir, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the crazy man in the street. When I start to dance, everything goes chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. The senorita said, "Sing and I'll swing with that ombero. It's very nice." Carrie, as Ipkiss, as the mask is surrounded by dozens of police with guns drawn. They want to arrest him, but they're willing to shoot him. The mask assesses the situation, flashes a toothy smirk, and then the music hits. The song is Cuban Pete, made famous by Ricky Ricardo a half century before. The mask starts singing and dancing. The police start moving their shoulders to the beat. Before you know it, one of the female officers sings along. And finally, it turns into a Broadway-worthy dance number with lights and choreography, and I was suddenly a believer in Jim Carrey. The rest of the movie was fine. Nothing else lived up to that one five-minute sequence. But whenever I come across the mask on TV, I wait till that scene happens, and I'm never disappointed. All right, folks, it's showtime. Theaters in beautiful York, Pennsylvania. Well, it's York, Pennsylvania. Uh, Frank's Theaters is probably my favorite place to see a movie. I know I've seen Frank's Theaters in other places. I don't know how common they are, but love going there. They have a bar. They have assigned seating, so I don't have to like throw elbows to try to get a decent seat. By the way, they're not paying me for this. If you haven't caught on, Movies at Marvel does not have a sponsor. Yet, I'm hopeful one day we'll, uh, the money will start rolling in, and then we'll just be shilling like crazy for whatever people uh, pay us enough money to. We're not going to have any pride about it. On my way to see Batman versus Superman, or Batman v Superman. For some reason, I just want to say the V. Thursday, so it's actually the day before opening night. I'm catching one of the early showings. I think it'll be pretty cool. I think I'll have a chance to be around that really excited audience. The reviews have been coming in, and they have not been good. Entertainment Weekly, a magazine I am a fan of, gave it a C+. I've seen reviews that have been lukewarm like that, C+, B-. And I've seen one or two that were angry about the movie. And maybe I'll regret this, but I tend to ignore the angry people because there's some reviewers who just are upset that this movie exists. I don't know. I think they were going to dislike the movie no matter what. I could be wrong. You could hear me later in this episode really angry about what I just saw. We'll see. 
I am looking forward to this. This is a pretty crazy movie, and they've, it's one that they've tried on and off for decades to make happen. I know there was a script for a Batman and Superman probably 15 years ago that involved a retired Batman. The Joker was the main villain, although I think Lex Luthor was in it. I believe they'd even started doing some screen testing or basically auditioning people for the roles, but it never happened. That was at a time when they were really trying hard to reboot Superman. It was after Quest for Peace, and they were trying to figure out where to go with the franchise next. It was after Batman had happened, so there was the comic book movie industry was revitalized a bit. But there wasn't a great... I don't know, this is something we'll probably have to talk about in another episode. About the strangeness of the fact that Batman happened was wildly successful. That first Batman movie with Michael Keaton just was wasn't just the money it made, although it made a ton of money, but also the cultural impact it had. Despite that fact, there weren't a whole lot of follow-up, big-deal comic book movies afterward. They weren't able to get Superman off the ground. Spider-Man took quite a while longer to happen after that came out. It's interesting. It's not like today, where Iron Man happened, was very successful, and then they just kept making movie after movie after movie after movie. I think part of that is Marvel's... I know they've had a couple of regime changes, and we're, now that they're part of the Disney Corporation, they're able to actually get the money behind those projects. But that's beside the point. Getting back to the focus of this conversation, I'm on my way to see Superman versus Batman. A little bit of trepidation. I'm not a huge Batman or Superman fan, or a DC Comics fan in general. There's a reason why this podcast is called Movies at Marvel. I have always been a Marvel fan. I've never been a month-after-month-after-month fan of a DC comic. I've read issues here or there. Obviously, I've read Batman, Dark Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller miniseries. That's one of the pinnacles of comic book creative achievements. I I never followed a DC comic. Superman I always found sort of boring. I feel bad for the writers because he's a tough character to write, but I don't think they do themselves any favors. There's a weird thing that happens. They always talk about when there's a reboot to the DC Universe that they're going to bring Superman back down to Earth and they're going to scale back his powers a little bit and give him some vulnerability. And then if you come back to the comic a year later, he's pushing planets. He's getting stronger and stronger and they amp up his power level again. It's a similar thing that happens to Wolverine. Briefly touched on this before. The problem I have with Wolverine is every writer, and I think it's also lands on the artist as well because they want to draw these scenes, want to see how much damage they can do to Wolverine and have him heal from it. During the Chris Claremont run of X-Men, if you think of X-Men, the characters that you love, the stories that you love, the stories that were taken into the movies, you're thinking of Chris Claremont. He wrote X-Men for... I want to say 15 years, and then came back to the series several times. He would always be very careful how he wrote Wolverine, so that you knew that a normal person with a sword or a knife or whatever could kill Wolverine, and he could heal quickly, but he wasn't immortal or completely invulnerable, and that's the problem. Then you have subsequent writers, and again, I think the artists just want to draw cool scenes, amp that healing factor way too high. The issue that really bothered me is there was an issue of Wolverine where there was a bad guy called Nitro whose power was he could explode. Nitro exploded. Seen in the comic had Wolverine, the flesh and tissue stripped from his skeleton, 
So all that was left was a skeleton that fell to the ground. By the end of the issue, there was Wolverine fully healed, punching out Nitro. Where's the danger for that character if he can heal from something that drastic? Now, writers have tried to scale back. There was even one run on the Wolverine series where it was implied that his healing factor was drastically reduced, and Wolverine ending that series talking about how uh, my life has never been in more danger and things have never been more dangerous for me. Let's do it. But it was quickly ignored by the next writer. That's sort of the problem with Superman. Everyone wants to make him more and more vulnerable. It loses all the danger for the character. I'm also indifferent to Batman. I think the character himself is boring. The best part of Batman is his, his rogues gallery. He's got some great bad guys. Joker, Penguin, Riddler. Especially a fan of Two-Face and Ra's al Ghul. It was played by Liam Neeson in the most recent movies. Batman himself, especially in the movies, you run into the problem. And this is something that Jarf and I have discussed a couple times. Every time they have Batman in these movies, they're going to figure out a way to re-show his origin. Uh, it gets a little old. How many times do you want to see the same scene done over and over? And I understand the, the importance and how it's the center of the character. But, I don't know. I, I think it's something that, by now, the story has so much cultural awareness. If you just mention it, or just have Bruce Wayne have a 20-second explanation of why he does what he does, saying, my parents got shot and killed in front of me. That's why I do this, and that's why I don't, I'll never pick up a gun. I think that'll do it anymore. You don't need to show the scene. But, we're going to see what happens. There's some good stuff to be had here. I think Zack Snyder's an interesting visual director. Ben Affleck has actually been getting some positive press about his performance. I like Amy Adams very much. I think she's probably one of the better actresses working in Hollywood right now. Henry Cavill definitely has the looks and the charisma for the role. I'm hoping they're going to give him a little bit more to do as Clark Kent and also try to differentiate more the looks and behavior of Clark Kent versus the looks and behavior of Superman to give him that duality that's so important to the character. I also hear Jeremy Irons as Alfred is very good, and I like Jeremy Irons, so uh, and I think it's a good role for him. The jury's out on the new Lex Luthor. I heard one review that really didn't like the performance, but we'll see what happens. I'll be back later in this episode on my drive back from seeing this movie. I'll give my opinion. Thanks. Uh, Ranging Time, his new album. You and I have been Pete Yorn fans for a long, long time. And this was one that I was proud of because Paul Westerberg, you introduced me to. I had to work a while to get you into Pete Yorn. I was wondering about that. I honestly did not remember who stumbled upon him. 
Okay, it was you. I will give you full credit. Well, it was funny, and I remember this. It was when we both worked at the company. I liked Pete Yorn. I lent you the CD, and you were turned off immediately because you thought he was too much of a fake pretty boy Evan Dondo. <laughs> he is a handsome fellow. You want to hold it against him because, and especially it was his first album. They were really there was really a big promotional push behind him, and they were they were working hard on the fact that he was a good looking guy. So he had like a, just a lot of glamour, almost Zoolander esque pictures. <laughs> and if you put the CD in, yes, kids, this is back when there were CDs. If you put the CD in a computer, it would come up with Pete Yorn wallpaper to go on your computer. It was <laughs> it was the exact opposite sort of. A promotion <laughs> that would work for Sean. <laughs> and I kept saying, he's like, no, 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 you got to listen to the music. It's really good music. And my thought was Pete Yorn, his first album, Music for the Morning After, was the album that you, Sean Reynolds, would want to make if you were able to do it. it. It was the exact sort of music that I could see you, if you had a proper recording studio, the time and the money and effort. It was exactly the sort of music you would have made. Thank you. And, and the talent, if I had the talent. Yes, it was a fantastic record. I, I'm glad you stuck it in my hands, and I'm glad you stuck with it, because um, I love that first record. First of all, it's, it is a good record, but I, I, a lot of my fondness has to do with, I think, the time period. It, was, it would have been the year before I moved to Texas, because it came out early 2001. But I'm trying to place memories around it. The only memory I can place around it is driving to work hungover and listening to it all the time in the morning on the way to work. So I don't. It's a, it's a great album. It is a great album, especially for a, de- a debut album. It's very coy. The, the, there isn't, you know, it's it, it's a rock album, but it's not. Of course, we're talking about music for the morning after his his first album. Uh, he's not a guitar riff driven guy. He doesn't have you know these guitar solos. But at the same time, it's still a rock and roll record. And I think this might hurt him. He's certainly done well. You know, Music for the Morning after his first album came out 15 years ago. He has consistently worked and consistently toured. He's had a decent amount of success in those 15 years. But I think what has hurt him, aside from the fact that we're past the album era, yeah, what has hurt him is he's very, and this sounds like an insult and I don't mean it to be, but he definitely has a very middle-of-the-road sound. It's not yeah. real loud. It's not real. It's not folk. It's but it's not really really rock. The lyrics are intelligent, but he's not doesn't portray himself as this craftsman wordsmith. Right. His success is his music is very warm and very relatable to me. With you a hundred percent. As I dug back into the catalog, you know, whenever somebody has a new album come out, I always pull out the rest of the catalog to, to give it context. And I was trying to put my finger on the very exact same thing. But why do I consider this a rock and roll record? Because I can't put you in, I, I, not that I'm so hung up of putting you in a category, but if you're trying to describe the music to somebody. I was trying to put my finger on the very same thing. And I think it's, I don't know what the word to use. I, I don't want to call it flat, but no instrument or no part of the song, including his singing, is pulling focus. Everybody there or everything there is there for a reason and contributes to the song. And that makes the song as a whole. But nothing is at any time pulling focus. He's not screaming. He's not. He doesn't have these huge guitar riffs that come out of nowhere. He doesn't have guitar solos that come out of nowhere. Everything is kind of there contributing to the song, and everything is there for a reason. They are well-crafted pieces of music that are all 
put together to create the best song. So there's no fancy drum fills. As you've said, there's no big crashing guitar solo. He doesn't go on vocal runs or anything like that. He, He just tells the story. The songs of his that I like the most are the ones that they just have these neat, simple narratives. There was one song off of one of his later albums called Social Development Dance. Yes, I love that song. It is a fantastic um, song, and it's a, just it, and it's uh, and this is another thing I like about him. He doesn't sing about the love of his life. He doesn't sing about the big crashing romance or the giant heartbreak. He's not Meatloaf, someone that we've he, talked about in the past. He's Corey. What's that? He, he's Corey. C O Y. Corey. He's very oh, okay. Corey. Yeah, he's very Corey. Nothing is very um, – even his vocal delivery is, is, is somewhat Corey sometimes. But with that song in particular, the song was about a relationship, not even a relationship, sort of a summer hookup, a girl that the narrator had a fantastic chemistry with. It didn't work out, and he found out later that she passed away. There's something so, again, so warm about that because, first off, I think it's a story that a lot of people can relate to where people have that fling – or that flirtation with someone where there was great chemistry and they were sort of a neat person, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And it's not this big hole in your life because, oh, it didn't work out and she was loving my life. It's No, it's like, oh, that, that girl was kind of neat. It's a shame yeah. it didn't, more didn't happen, and I, you finally remember that. When I first heard that song, that particular song, Social Development Dance, really connected with me because uh, not long after I first heard it, I had found out that a young woman that I had had a similar sort of flirtation with a decade before hadn't thought about it for a while, and I found out from a friend of a friend of a friend that she had passed away, showing you the relatability where he keeps telling these stories that you can often relate to in your own life. Yes, and, and I, he does a wonderful job of not laying it all out on a platter for you. There's a lot of blank spaces <laughs> for you to fill out. Or for you to complete your own narrative, too, if you will. Uh, and that, to me, that's a mark of a good songwriter. As a songwriter, he doesn't put out a lot of clunkers. No. I, I, no. And I've, I have all of his albums. He's put, and he's put out five or six, six. Pete Yorn albums. Two Ohm albums. Is it Ohm? Yeah, the Ohms, yes. And, then, uh, and, and with that six, I think I'm counting the one with uh, Scarlett Johansson. Yes, True Believers, uh, this is our Marvel movie tie-in. Pete Yorn put oh. out an album with Scarlet, the Black Widow Johansson, uh, probably boom. six, seven years ago. Hey, boom, indeed. We have a tie-in to Marvel. <laughs> Which we barely do anymore. I, 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 I like the title of this podcast too much, or else I would change it because we don't talk about Marvel movies nearly enough. But you know who else... Um, obviously, Marver loves Scarlett Johansson, but uh, Pair, uh, France loves Scarlett Johansson. That album went platinum. Uh, it's a good album, don't get me wrong, but that, uh, apparently they love Scarlett Johansson because um, that album went platinum uh, in France. Is that because she did the Woody Allen movies? I don't know. I she, don't know. she did two Woody Allen movies, one of which was Matchpoint, which was excellent, and that was filmed in France. And then she okay. did another like murder mystery comedy with Hugh Jackman, also set in France. So maybe she's got a, a bit of a relationship with them. But yeah, because I, I was really, you know, with his new album, I, I'm always rooting for the underdog, even if you're not an underdog. Although I, I, I'm first to wave that indie flag and 
you know, knock down the the corporations and everything. I, I still, when I have a long term relationship with these musicians, such as Pete Yorn, where I follow their career for so long, I, I want them to succeed. And with this album, I'm like, God, I really hope that he gets a big payout for this album. But he's not an underdog. He he went platinum in France with this with uh, Scarlett Johansson. So I, I guess I'm not. I'm guessing he's not an underdog anymore. Yeah, it's hard to call him an underdog because. Music for the morning after sold very well. It I think, did. I think that went platinum in the states. To my knowledge, he, none of his albums have really cracked into the top twenty. But I could I could be wrong. First off, I don't. Th- I think he's. I think he self produces or he he plays a lot of his own instruments. I don't think it's very. I don't think he makes expensive albums. He no. writes his own songs. He obviously, has some success because. He, he he's in the same stratus. He gets to hang out with Scarlett Johansson. You're doing something right if you get this hang out with Scarlett Johansson. He's a terribly handsome man as well, but I have to think that he's a nice guy. True enough. <laughs> he comes off well in the he few comes interviews. Off very well. I've seen him in concert twice, and he has a very likable, affable presence. I didn't know that you've seen him in concert. Very good shows. He, he's a good performer. Um, I saw him at the. 9.30 Club in uh, D.C. Great place to see a show. Great place to see a show. That was for the Nightcrawler album, his third album. Okay. And you talk about two stories about the, the 9.30 show performance. First, you were talking about him being a handsome man. My wife and I were walking into the venue. There was a young woman, probably in her 20s, on the phone trying to get one of her girlfriends to come to the show. She's like, yeah, come on. It's Pete Yorn. <laughs> it, it, it it doesn't matter if you don't know who he is. He is really hot. You should come and see the show. <laughs> he's and he's not a boy band guy. No, not at all. No, he's got the he's sporting the uh, the hairdo I had when I was a little kid in the seventies. <laughs> I don't, but it works much better on him than it does on me. <laughs> my second story about that show was my wife and this, this is really the only thing that ties into Pete Yorn is it was at a Pete Yorn concert. My wife and I are at the nine thirty club watching a show, having a great time. And then I look behind me and I see this young 20-something couple, tall, handsome, broad-shouldered guy, and this beautiful, petite, raven-haired girl talking to each other. And he is, the guy was talking a mile a minute, and the young woman was looking at him with this, like, little half-smirk smile at him. And I <laughs> elbow my wife on the, sh- I elbow my wife, is like, hey, hey, Heather, look look at that, look at that. She's like, that couple? It's like, yeah, look at that couple. She's like, what am I looking for? It's like, look at her smile. And she looked at him, she looked at me, she looked at them, and she's like, she's going to let him see her naked tonight. I was like, yeah! He's <laughs> like, look at, the, look at the smile on face. My wife said, it's like, he, she has decided, tonight is the night, he finally gets to see her naked. And she's smiling, thinking, you have no idea how much naked you're going to get to see me tonight. <laughs> I need to go to a Pete Yorn show. <laughs> but oh, it was so funny. And, and the guy's talking, and he's moving his hands. God bless him. He is trying to impress this girl. And I felt like walking over, tapping his shoulder, and saying, dude, you're in. Stop it. You're just going to convince her not to let you see her naked tonight. <laughs> I also saw him in Lancaster probably two years ago. His opener was Ben Queller which was a great show. Oh, my gosh. You saw Ben Keller, too? It almost feels like you're cheating on me, Brad. <laughs> well, you, you would never go to concerts anyway. I would go see Ben Queller. I well, would go see Pete Yorn. All right. Well, I'm really going to break your heart now. <laughs> right. And then we'll get back to the subject at hand. Ben Queller was the opener. He did about a half-hour set, and they had the table set up to buy merch. 
And they told me, I, I talked to the woman behind the, the merch table, and she said, oh, if you give me $15, we are recording Ben's show. It'll be ready for you 10 minutes after the opening act is done. So I have a recording of the Ben Queller show in Lancaster that I was attended. Was this acoustic or electric or just a regular show? It, it, it was a, it was an acoustic set. He also played p- piano. Which tour was this? It was the Pete Yorn Black album. Oh, and Frank Black? Yeah, Frank Black pro- is the one that Frank Black produced. Yeah, that's the last one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a rock and roll record without a doubt. Yeah, it's a self-titled one, Pete Yorn, just Pete Yorn. But yeah, good album. Okay, okay, cool. And then, uh, you know, I bought Ben Queller's performance, his opening act, and then I got to talk to him a little bit after he, he was done. Such a nice guy, too, I hear. He couldn't have been any nicer, and I actually introduced myself, and to those not aware, Ben Queller, Ben Folds, and Ben Lee? Ben Lee, yeah. Put out a four-song EP, EP yeah. under the name The Ben's. <laughs> and I actually talked to Ben Queller, and I said, hey, the, the Ben's is my favorite EP of all time. And I asked him if they were ever going to get together and produce more music. And the Ben's album's got to be 10 years old. Yeah, def- at least. Ben Queller said, yeah, we're still in touch. One day we'll, we'll get together and we'll do more stuff. That would be cool. That, that is probably the greatest EP of all time. It actually, I remember listening to that before I moved to Dallas. So I think it's even older than now. That's not true, but it's got to be 10 plus years. I agree. Well, hey. that is awesome. All right, son. So let's talk about Arranging Time, the album that just came out, uh, I guess, a week and a half ago. Yeah. And he was presenting this as him going back to sort of the recording philosophy he used in his earlier albums. I don't know if you saw anything about that, but, you know, he's been he had used some different producers recently, uh, like Frank Black. Yeah. He's, he's done some different things, doing trying trying some new things. As you mentioned, he uh, did an album with Frank Black from uh, the Pixies. He did, um, obviously, we mentioned an album with uh, Scarlett Johansson. He did a couple albums with the Ohms, which is a, a complete different sound for him, or at least for his solo albums. But yeah, this, this seemed like a full circle, coming back to working with the same producer he worked with on the first album, just doing a solo album. Uh, the way, as you said, uh, the, the way he used to. It's a great album. I, I've been dying to tell you that and text you that, but I, I really like this album. It is way, it is way, way up there as far as uh, where it ranks. I mean, n- n- not that I'm going to force myself to rank his albums, but it's, it's way up there. This is this is a great record. How about yourself? Yeah, I loved it. It was it was a little less rock than his other stuff, but. You could tell this is a guy who's been doing music for a while, and he has a little bit more life experience. I know he just had his first child. It's, it's this music, you can tell, is produced by someone with some more experience and is trying to do something interesting and new, going back to an older style of recording, but still do tell different stories. And he's still very much a storyteller. I feel like he had to do those other records to make this record. This is the accumulation of skills and experience from doing all those other records, doing all those other things he wanted to try, and, and just bringing it all to the table, just pulling everything out of the arsenal and, and using it on this record. And, and I'm with you. It is it is a little bit, I hate to say pr- more produced, but it is. It, it's There is a lot more production, and I think it's a producer that's really pushed him to do some things that he hasn't done before. And I think Pete Yorn's pushing himself as well. This is a lush 
album. This has got a lot of texture to it. Well, he's never been a guy afraid of production. No, you know, and I, I've read some other reviews, and I'm like, oh, he's using more effects on his voice, and wh- whatever. He's always, he's always, as you said, not not afraid to use things that are in his arsenal. They're there. Why not use them? Break out the china. You don't have to wait for company. So, <laughs> I don't, I mean... Well, he's a good singer. He's not a great singer. He's a good guitarist. He's not a great guitarist. He puts together solid bands, but he doesn't pull together... You know, it's not Keith Moon on drums. It's not Stuart Ham on bass. He gets together very journeyman-level musicians. Solid guys, but it's always about tying it all together to make the song. And I, I, I would love to... You know, pick his brain, obviously, or you know, maybe read a little bit deeper into his work process. But it seems like he wants he he gets the sound of in his head of what he wants, and he gets all the tools available to make that happen. And he's had success doing some producing and backing other musicians. That's the sort of musician he is. He's a guy who knows music and he knows how to put stuff together, and he's very workmanlike. That's my perception as well, and I, I mentioned it before that there are the things that he adds to the music or to the songs have to add value to complete the full the full picture. It's not a song until he has those missing pieces put into place, and nothing is there arbitrarily. Nothing is there to pull focus. You know what? He will beat one chord into submission if it completes the, the full picture of that song. And there's no shame in that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think to have that discipline to do that because it serves a song, as opposed to saying to yourself, ah, I'm, I'm hitting the same chord over and over again. I need to add another two or three chords so that I can show my face in Guitar Center. There's absolutely nothing wrong hitting that one chord repeatedly if that helps complete the full picture. We've done this a couple times before. We need our gateway songs. So what are the three songs off of this album that you would recommend someone to whet their appetite for buying the entire album, Arranging Time? I always stumble on this question as if I don't know you're going to ask me. My first dip or foot in the water was Lost Weekend because he did, he did release that before the rest of the album. Um, that's a great song. And actually, that's the song I was thinking about when I talked about beating one, that chord into submission. Lost Weekend. It's a great song, and it's a great representation of what's on the album. That's my favorite song off the album as well. It's not my. It's not well. I don't oh, want to call me, it my let me favorite. Rephrase. It's not my it's, top three. <laughs> it's my favorite song off the album. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have spoken for you on that. <laughs> I, you know, Pete Norn might hear this, and and he might say, "Oh, that's not my favorite. Why did he pick that?" <laughs> but um, um, so I don't want to be included in that. <laughs> I don't. It's all me, but, Pete. It's all me, Pete. <laughs> I don't want to give any impression that the other 11 songs are not worthy of mention, <laughs> but it is a great song. And, and as I said, that's a gate. I, I say it's a gateway song because there is a video out there to watch. And I guess it is a quote unquote, the single from the album. Uh, it's a great song, by the way. I do love it. Don't, don't get me wrong. My favorite Pete Yorn songs speak to me because Pete Yorn isn't afraid to embrace the fact that he grew up apparently, you know, uh, Jersey. Yeah, he, he grew up in Jersey, and he was a middle-class white kid. And he sings middle-class white kid songs. And he sings about experiences that the fact that I grew up a middle-class white kid, I can completely r- relate to. And that song, In Lost Weekend, the chorus is getting straight out of suburbia, getting getting 
straight out of the basement, had another lost weekend, I need another vacation. He's singing about sort of just being stuck in suburbs, having that life, and just needing to break out of it on the weekend, and I can completely relate to that, and that feeling, and, you know, the way he sings it, the emotions behind it, it's like, ah, it's, you know, Pete, Mo- Pete Yorn, his best music, you know, when we were talking about social development dance, his songs really take me back to growing up, and in, uh, there's so many... His music makes me remember stuff. Yeah, I, I clearly identify with the song as well, and I, I took the same 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 thing away from it. I, I hate to say retro because it doesn't have a retro sound to it at all, but it certainly takes me back. It takes me back home, um, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, I, I took the same way, same thing away from that song, and I find that interesting because there's not a lot of lyrics to it. It's again. There's a lot of blanks for you to fill out on your own in, in those sentences. It's a great song. It's very, it's very well-crafted. To tie it back into comic books, I once read a, a very good book called Understanding Comics by, I think it was Scott McCloud. I'll correct the name on the website if I got it wrong. But he talked about when you read a comic book, often comics use this device where they have very lush and very specific backgrounds and a protagonist that has almost a blank expression, almost as if they erased all of the characteristics from their face. And the idea is they have that blank expression so the reader can put his or herself into the story. Yeah. And nice. there's a certain similarity to the way Pete Yorn writes his music where he doesn't write too many specifics, maybe a hint or two here or there, but he allows, as you said, the blank spaces, and it helps the listener put his or herself into those songs and into those stories. Profound. We should just end it right here. <laughs> nah, we, we, we got more songs to go. We got more songs Yes, to go. I, I got more I want to talk about. I agree with you 100%. And that's why uh, you mentioned Pete Yorn is, is not the, the best singer, the best guitarist, but back on it, he is a craftsman, and he's, he's one of the best at his craft. The other thing, you, you can't just listen to the single. That's just waiting waiting in the pool you really need to submerse yourself in this album this is an album that you need to submerse yourself in take off the floaties and and listen to it in its totality but around the the fourth and fifth song are my other two picks in your head and i mean not in your head i'm sorry the fifth and sixth song she was weird and i'm not the one and it's around the midway point and as i said it's all good but you feel like you're you're on an a uh you're on an incline you're on the up and the the album just really starts to soar right around there and just keeps going and by that i mean you this is an album you can listen to all the way through it it works as one complete subject as opposed to just one single but anyway so those two songs that i'm mentioning is um she was weird that is just a beautiful song a lot of stuff going on with the the drums a lot of stuff going on with his vocals and the background vocals i love it just, just a very. We, may, we keep saying this, but I, I, there's no other word that works as well. It's a very lush, textured song, and, and it's another one where I really like just the concept behind it. And it's another one that another song that makes me sort of remember being young. And you know, Pete Yorn yeah. does a great job of his music makes you feel young without being nostalgic sounding songs. They do cause a you know a feeling of nostalgia listening to them. I think I can speak for many people who had that girl that they were into or that guy that they were into when they were in high school or they were in college. And that quirky girl you just couldn't quite connect with or couldn't quite figure out. You know, it's just that neat, weird girl that you really wanted 
her to dig you. And some, you know, in my case, she didn't. And there was just something so interesting about that music, you know, singing to that girl. That's nice. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I am so wrapping myself around the production of that song and, and, and all the stuff that's going on in that song that I haven't even been able to focus long enough on the um, the lyrics. And, and I've listened to this album countless of times in the last week to get ready to talk to you about it. It's just that there's a lot of stuff going on in that song, but there's not too much going on. It's just enough. And he's, he's doing stuff he hasn't done before, but it's still so much Pete Yorn. Uh, unmistakable. It's it's Pete Yorn. It's not he's not trying to do anything that uh, is out of character. It, it's there's just no denying these are his songs, despite the additional production. He still has those jangly acoustic chords in the middle of the song, and he still has the weird turns in the chorus or the weird turns in the bridge. And I tell you what, have, have you ever tried playing any of his music on the guitar? Just when I recognize the one chord that he beats in the submission. But other than that, no. <laughs> I, don't. I do like playing with him just because you can hit that, that one chord on the acoustic and keep going with it and it works. <laughs> but no, other than that, no. Not seriously and not sober. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have really complex arrangements. They're really fun arrangements. When I used to do a lot of open mics... One of the songs I did was June off his first album. Oh, beautiful song. Yeah. Really fun song. And, you know, uh, here's a word to all the, the true believers out there listening to this this episode. If you if you know a couple of guitar chords, and if you can sing half decent, go online and get it, download all the Pete Yorn songs you can. Because you don't need to be a great singer to sing Pete Yorn. You don't need to be a great guitarist to play Pete Yorn music. And it sounds really good on a car- it, it sounds really good on an open mic. <laughs> and June was the song of his that I played, and it's a fun little two minute song. There's no real chorus to it. It's just another little fun story that he tells, and it was a lot of fun to play. Just another way that Pete Yorn helps us brothers out and getting the ladies naked. In other words, yeah, that that, that isn't what happened, but I oh. nice <laughs> n- nice thought. <laughs> Now, you were also talking about I'm, I'm Not, not the, one. the One. Yeah. She was weird, as I said, just really sores. And and I'm Not the One just kind of picks up from there. It's just a sweet spot of the album, um, and it just doesn't doesn't never draw you off. It's just a – just yeah. Again, it's, it's all the things that I love about She Was Weird. I love about I'm Not the One. There's just a lot of stuff going on. Well, it's another example of him not having overblown songs lyrically. Mm-hmm. Where he's not – that was what was funny about Music for the Morning After. He never talked about being in love with someone. You know, he, he, he wouldn't dive into the big emotions or the big things. It was always the little stories that he would tell. And this is the same thing where with I'm Not the One, he's just sort of like a little breakup. Not the end of the world and no one's throwing themselves off of cliffs. It's not <laughs> – He's it, coy. He's so darn coy. He is. Yes, but you know it's it's nice in an industry that doesn't have a lot of coy, where it's a lot of big songs, big stories, big. It's okay everything. to be subtle. It's okay to be subtle. I'm with you. It, not everything has to be so big and in your face, and, and that speaks a lot to the production of this too, as well, or how it was mastered. Not only did I say that nobody's really, and you're right, he does play a lot of the instruments, but 
there's never one instrument that's pulling complete focus away. The way it's mastered, it, it, it's really consistent with that style of song as well. <laughs> I can't put my finger on it. It's not big, but at the same time, it has such a sonic, soaring, lush feel to the to the album. It, it, I really, again, this is a, a culmination of everything he's worked up to. I feel this is this is a solid album. Those are the three songs you'd recommend all our listeners go out listen to those three songs, and after that, they will buy the rest of the album. Yeah, take take the floaties off and, and just submerse yourself with the whole album because that's the context that you need it. Trust me. And he's a trustworthy guy. <laughs> All right. Now, one little thing, one fun story about Pete Yorn that you and I appreciate. I, I, I believe you know this story. You and I are both Lloyd Cole fans. Yes. I'm sure there will come a point where we will do one of these discussions about the music of Lloyd Cole. And he put out a very good album Lloyd Cole did called Music in a Foreign Language. Yes. Which had a song with that same title. Which was at least partially about Pete Yorn. Was it really? Yeah. There was a great line in that. I'm going to pull this up. It's Google. It's uh, Google so, Magic Time. Why you're, why you're Googling and, and nobody actually knows that you're doing that. So did you pick up on Lost Weekend, obviously the song on Pete Yorn's album, that uh, Lloyd Cole Commotions had a song by the name, the same name? Yes, they did. I, I wonder if that was a little nod. Does everybody just use that phrase, Lost Weekend, but me? It, 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 it's a it's a known term. It's a little out of date, but no, it, it was actually a shot that Lloyd took at Pete Yorn. No way! One of the last verses of music in a foreign language by Lloyd Cole. It says, "I'll try to give it to you straight. My heart is almost full. There's not a lot of space, and so forgive me if I'm less than awed by your world weary twenty six year olds." <laughs> You know, Lloyd was taking a shot at all these 24, 25, 26-year-old musicians who were dealing with, and you know, this being 10, 15 years ago, everyone was all of a sudden interested in their quarter-life crisis, which was actually a term that John Mayer used in one of his songs. <laughs> Lloyd Cole, in, in one or two interviews, said, it's like, yeah, that was about Pete Yorn and all the other musicians like that. And then later in another uh, interview, he said, well, I guess Pete's in his thirties now. So it seemed like, like, well, it didn't seem like there was any malice. It was more Lloyd Cole talking about himself where at that point he was a guy in his late forties, early fifties. And you get to the point where you're no longer really interested in hearing basically children talking about how tough the world is. (laughs) I felt that Pete Yorn always had a sprinkling of optimism throughout a lot of songs, including this album. You know what? It doesn't matter what age you are. It's a tough world out there. It's not a bowl of cherries. But in fairness, it probably is a little easier for Pete Yorn, the the somewhat famous 26, then 26-year-old good-looking guy who has a, who gets texts from Scarlett Johansson asking him if he wants to produce albums with her. Yeah, I'm guessing Lloyd Cole wasn't getting those texts. Poor guy. I don't know who to cry out more for, Pete Yorn or Lloyd Cole. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I almost compared Pete Yorn to Lloyd Cole. They're both good singers, despite their best efforts, because there are there are many a times where they they do the coy thing in their in their singing delivery. Well, I'm convinced but, that that Pete Yorn wins. Just any competition and anything, he gets to put out good music. He, he gets texts from Scarlett Johansson. He also allegedly, and this is not something that we 
ever care about on this show, but I'm going to address it anyway. He allegedly got to hook up with Mini Driver and Liz Fair. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot get any better than hooking up with Mini Driver and or Liz Fair. I I think those are just two amazing women who I think are unbelievably cool. That sounds like a really messy room. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Do you have uh, anything else to share? I'm sorry, Pete Yorn, screaming at the sun, screaming at the setting sun. Is there so such a wet mix to that? Uh, I just just love it. And then I love how the album closes out with uh, this fire. This fire is just it's kind of dark, heartbreaking. Where does this album rank for you with the rest of his albums? It's tough. It, it's hard to rank because in the general area, it's definitely probably in the top three. Wow. So, music for the morning after. What would be the other one around there? Nightcrawler. Really? Really like Nightcrawler. Whew! Nightcrawler's towards the bottom for me. In, in fairness, I mean it's hard to rank all good stuff, but that's probably. I, I would say I will tell you this. So I dug the catalog back out, as I do when we talk about somebody. I, I always go back into the catalog. Music for the morning after, which currently is still, I think, at the top notch, top rank for me has held up it's incredibly well for being 15 years old that speaks to the songwriting that that those are songs that hold up very well having said that i I feel like this is teetering over there in that that area as much as i love i love back and forth by the way that would probably be in my top three and i love the second album but they i forgot they i forgot was a little bit of a sophomore slump it's a little rushed and i've also heard someone say the problem with second albums is often your first album is the one that you spent your entire life waiting to do. Right. That's a good point. You have 20 years of songwriting that you plug into that first album. You put everything into with the first album. And then there's like, okay, we need another album in six months. Get in there. Good work. It's too soon to say because some time has to pass. But I feel like this this album could really... um, I feel like this is it. I, I can listen to this album from start to finish without skipping anything. We'll have to see if it holds up as well in the next 15 years. His albums tend to get better with time because of how understated they are. Yeah. Sometimes it takes... Sometimes Social Development Dance, I don't think I realized how much I love that song until the 500th time I heard it. Even, even as I said, I dug out the catalog. I'm finding things on the self-titled album that I overlooked. That's that's one good thing about having a nice catalog to to, to dig back out. So I would agree with that. Sometimes you you do need to listen to it um, several times before something clicks. I'm sure he'll come to a venue near me at some point. I might try to see him again because he's also one of those performers where some songs you don't get until you see them performed live. Yeah. Um, Marshall Crenshaw, who I'm a big fan of, does the same thing, where I was a big Marshall Crenshaw fan. He had a song called Just Not For Me, and I had listened to that song a thousand times, and I had listened to that album a bunch, and it was never one that really connected with me. And then I saw him in concert, and he finally did that song. I was like, oh, I never realized this song is awesome. And Pete Yorn has that as well, where... Sometimes you just actually need to see, you know, the the sausage being made before you appreciate how good it is. Oh my gosh! I know that's not nearly what the expression is meant to be, but that's what I'm sticking by it. Anything else to share? No, I'm I'm good. I I just 
Sorry to bring it back. I know you were trying to wrap it up, but I, I had to throw out those other songs out there to get your take on them. Yeah, but, so basically uh, your your entry is all the songs. Yes, all the songs. Yes, all the songs. I hope everyone gives this a listen. I'll post links on the, the website. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Sean. Oh, thanks for having me, Brad. Always a good time. Well, I saw it. Meh. That's really the review I have of it. Meh. It wasn't as bad as the worst reviews would lead you to believe, but it definitely didn't connect with me. Part of the problem was the best parts of the movie were often things that were going to be parts of other movies. I think there's a chance that the next Batman movie starring and, I believe, to be directed by Ben Affleck. Looks like it would be a good movie. Affleck, and this surprises me as much as it does anyone else, was a pretty good Batman. He was also a pretty good Bruce Wayne. Jeremy Irons was a very good Alfred. They seem to have an interesting take on the character. He was a little too bloodthirsty for my taste. The Batmobile and the Batplane used way too many Bat bullets, which is something that happened in the... Tim Burton, Batman movies, and other things. And, and I think also the Nolan movies also had some gunplay with the Batmachines. Man, I ne- I've never liked that. Such a huge part of the character is it doesn't use guns. And he, he, he was bloodthirsty. He killed some people. I'm not crazy about that. There's heroes that just don't kill. Spider-Man, Superman. Captain America doesn't kill. And in fairness, he did, in the Captain America movies, he did leave some bodies. But... I liked Winter Soldier especially so much that I'm willing to forgive. Other good parts of the movies, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman showed a little bit of spark. And there was a great scene. Spoiler alerts with all of this. I'm going to try to not share too much. In the big final fight where they're fighting Doomsday, and I think that's pretty well known. Doomsday, a mutated Kryptonian thunder lizard, for lack of a better term. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are fighting Doomsday. And Wonder Woman gets knocked around, and she smiles. And it was a great little peek into her character. She's the warrior of the three. Superman's the icon. He's the rescuer. Batman is the detective and the vigilante. Wonder Woman often is at her best when she's the warrior. That scene of her smiling realizing that she's in the midst of a great fight. It was cool. Credit given to Gal Gadot, I had no real thought process of if I was going to like her or not in the role, and I think she did a good job. But that's another problem with the movie, where I'm watching Batman versus Superman, and it makes me interested in seeing Wonder Woman. There also was cameos of Cyborg, Aquaman, and Flash. Aquaman, Jason Momoa swimming didn't really show me anything nothing of real interest there you have no idea how they're going to deal with the problems of aquaman how are you going to make a guy swimming are you really going to have an underwater film they really need to show how he can be impressive and interesting on dry land 
they didn't do anything to answer that question. Now, granted, it was like a 30-second clip. No big deal. The Flash cameo was intriguing. And I have a problem with speedsters. I watched the first season of the Flash TV show. thought it was okay, but there's always these logic gaps whenever you deal with speedsters. Same with Quicksilver in both X-Men Days of Future Past. He had that great scene, but you realize his character created such logic gaps and such logic problems for the rest of the film. And it's one of those things, if you think about, you know, I think about them, causes a problem. And the same thing in the Quicksilver, the other take on the character in the Avengers movie, where him being a speedster, he basically had to slip on a banana peel to get into trouble. Meaning Quicksilver in the Avengers basically got knocked around twice, three times. First time when he thinks he's going to grab Thor's hammer, not realizing that only Thor and Vision can grab Thor's hammer, and he gets knocked around by that because of his own hubris. And then later, because he's not paying attention, and Hawkeye has the opportunity to sneak up on him, and then finally what happens to him at the end because he's trying to save someone. You know, that's my problem with Speedster. So the, the clip of The Flash, the movie version of The Flash, looks interesting. You just really need a very, very good director and very, very good writers to figure out a way to make him work because speedsters are hard to make work and having a film centered on one can be really challenging. Uh, I think his name is Urza Miller who's going to be starring in that film and they only showed a very quick clip of him. He has an interesting look. He looks different than the other characters. I'll, I'll be willing to give it a chance. So... The movie was long, spent a very long time before you even had the two characters meet. The antagonism between the two characters I I didn't really buy. Uh, There was also a problem that I had where there's a sequence that they've shown in the ads that looked really cool. The scene where, and they've shown it in the ads a bunch of times, where Superman unmasked a chained up Batman. That scene didn't work very well in the movie. The film had too many dream sequences. They didn't work. One or two of them were really jarring. I have a problem with the chemistry between Amy Adams and Henry Cavill. Amy Adams, as I said before, I think she's a great actress. I'm not real convinced by those two as a couple. Um, I think. So basically, I would just say it's okay. Not bad. A little long. Definitely, I think, too much of a launching pad for other films and not worrying about making itself a good film. Still way too grim, still way too dark. I'm not thrilled with the plot line that they had of basically the populace turning on Superman. That's just never been a part of his story. Batman being a little too brutal and taking too many lives. And also, the whole point of the movie, the big showdown between Batman and Superman, sort of underwhelmed. And I think that's, it's a hard scene to make work because you have to make Superman weaker than he normally is. You have to make Batman a lot stronger than he normally is. They did their best. Uh, wasn't really a showstopper that it should have been. And I guess I would give it a C plus. Now, one thing of interest, the previews. Now, whenever they have the previews for a comic book movie, they tend to really pad it with other comic book movie previews. But first, they showed... The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 preview. And uh, you, could, you could just feel the eye-rolling happening in the theaters when this was happening. I didn't see the, the previous one from a year or two ago, 
and I know it did well. I don't know how this next one's going to do because the audience did not seem into it, and you would think this would be their crowd. They showed the Winter Soldier preview that's just been released online. The reaction was muted, but that's probably because everyone in the theater had probably already seen that preview a dozen times. They also showed the ad for, and it's not a comic book movie, but it's pretty darn close, the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman, no Snow White, just the Huntsman, played by Chris Hemsworth. You could just feel a collective shrug from the audience, because eh, that movie did okay, but it, I don't think anyone was really excited by it. It's always nice to see Chris Hemsworth, but he's just sort of doing a version of the Thor thing. Charlize Theron and Emily Blunt are in it, and they're both fantastic actresses, but it just seems like a really shoehorned movie where the first one was sort of successful. I don't know, I think the weakest part for a lot of people of that first movie was Snow White, played by Kristen Stewart. So they just sort of cut her out of the movie, as far as I know. I mean, maybe she'll show up. And you just have a movie that has no real reason to exist other than they think they might be able to make some more money off it. I, I, I don't blame Hollywood for trying to make money. It is a business. But I, I think there isn't enough reason for it to exist. It wasn't a wildly popular movie. It wasn't a game changer. It wasn't one that everyone's wondering, hey, I want to see more of this. I, I think that's going to be a disappointment. Now, the preview they got, the biggest reaction was in 2017, they're going to do a Lego Batman movie. Now, the, the Lego movie that was out a couple of years ago, Batman was a big character in that, and I think he was a bit of a fan favorite, spinning him off into his own Lego movie, voiced by Will Arnett, who's a great actor and a very good voice actor. And uh, the audience really reacted. They were There was a lot of laughs. There was a lot of cheers. That was, that was the one that really got a buzz from the audience. Go figure. Speaking of cheers from the audience, I think you can tell the general tone of how Batman vs. Superman was received because it was opening night. It's really the night before opening night. It's Thursday, packed crowd. It was a 7.30 Thursday show. These are the people who want to see this movie. And didn't hear a lot of cheering. You would think that during the big fights there would be a lot of gasps and cheers. And then at the end of the movie, there, there was one or two people that clapped. It's not a good sign for a movie like that. It, that means that the people who really wanted to see it weren't inspired or excited by it. One final word I would give, don't stay through the end credits. It's not a Marvel movie. Nothing happened. But sort of like those two minutes of my life back, or however long the end credits were, so I sat there like a schmo, and there was nothing. So I think that about wraps this up. See you guys on the other side. this episode of Movies at Marvel. Big thanks to Sean. Links to Pete Yorn's website can be found on CosmicGeppetto.com. More Batman v Superman coming up this week. And there is one more episode of Talking Soundtracks due soon. Until then, stay marvelous.
Movies That Marvel on iTunes. Please rate and review us while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic underscore Geppetto and we'll follow you back. Email us at moviesthatmarvel at comcast.net. We'd love to hear your ideas for upcoming episodes. Our website is cosmicgeppetto.com. It's fun. You should visit. Take care. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.